and welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Our guest today is Ivan Oransky, the co-founder of Retraction Watch. And in the interview, we went from retractions to peer review to science journalism to the ethos and pathos of being a scientist. And it was a super interesting interview, a bit longer than our usual interviews. Yeah, and we also did this um, a little while ago, and we were sort of working through our materials. So forgive us for our slightly uh, nervous questions. Yeah. But, but Ivan is amazing. <laughs> Ivan's amazing, really worth listening to him. So here he goes. Here we go. Ivan Oransky, I'm the co-founder of Retraction Watch and also the a uh, distinguished writer in residence at uh, New York University's Arthur Carter Journalism Institute. Um, I co-founded Retraction Watch in 2010 with Adam Marcus, uh, who remains the co-founder and for whom this is very much a 50-50 project. Um, we created the blog to shine a light on retractions, obviously, because we felt that retractions were really a, often a very good source of stories as, as journalists were very interested in stories and also because a lot of the times the retraction notices didn't tell the whole story or they told a misleading version of the story and we thought this was a good way to look at the correction mechanisms in science uh, science is very proud of its uh, correction mechanisms and and in fact it probably should be but retractions are not always a place where they shine and so we wanted to tell those stories Okay, um, so you wanted to highlight the stories behind the, the retraction. So how do you actually find out the story? How do you go about? Uh, we, uh, we, we, as somebody said a couple of years ago, we, um, about other kind of work, we commit journalism. Um, we call people. We, um, we contact the authors who are involved. We contact the editors. We contact um, universities that seem as though they might have done an investigation. Um, sometimes we file, and we've been doing more and more of this, we file uh, public records requests so that we can obtain reports and uh, letters and correspondence between universities and journals, um, sometimes between the authors and the university or the authors and the journals. Um, we try and find out what really happened. Uh, the, the problem with retraction notices uh, is that nobody really has an incentive to make them very thorough. Uh, and lawyers get involved at many stages of this process. And often what happens when lawyers get involved is that uh, important parts of the story get left out. And to protect people or just to, you know, be able to make sure that the whole story doesn't get out for some reason. And so we're we're trying to, you know, we're trying to prevent that. We're trying to make sure the story does get out. Would you say that you find find out all the cases? I, I read somewhere that already in the first year of retraction watch, you had like 200 retractions to watch, to report on. Do you really follow up on each one, each and, each and one of them? Well, no, we've, we've never followed up on every single case. There, there were actually... Uh, depending how you count it, there, there were actually 
almost 5,000 attractions the year that we started. There were a few thousand that we didn't know about until quite recently. But even if you look at the ones that, you know, everyone sort of began to know about back then, there were close to 400. And, uh, you know, we never really intended to cover every single one. That that wouldn't be, you know, frankly, they're not all interesting. And so we chose the ones that we thought were most interesting or seemed the most interesting. Um, but where we are comprehensive is in our database, which is actually basically complete at this point. We're still doing some quality assurance on it. We're still doing some fact checking on it and some, you know, obviously some, some technical issues that we want to make sure are working. But um, the database is, is comprehensive so that we have in the database 17,500 fractions as of right now. So you mentioned plagiarism. Um, what's the most common cause of retraction? Because I, I think I heard someone talk about self-retraction is quite common as well. But um, are you suggesting that misconduct like plagiarism is, is very common as, uh, as a cause? Um, I'm not sure I would agree that self-retraction is all that common. I, I'd be interested to hear where those data come from. Um, the best we can tell, about two-thirds of retraction are due to misconduct. Uh, about 20% of them are due to what people would say is honest error, um, whether even those were would be considered self-retraction or not is, a, is another question. Um, but in a, in a 2012 study, which you know really needs to be updated, just not because it was a bad study, it was a very good study, but because obviously it's somewhat old now, um, plagiarism was responsible for about 10% of retractions. Uh, duplication was responsible for, I believe it was about 15% of retractions. But overall, the the sort of triad of falsification, fabrication, and plagiarism. So falsification meaning you made the results look better than they really were. Fabrication meaning you made them up. And plagiarism, you know, meaning plagiarism, you still someone else's work. Um, that's responsible for about two-thirds of retractions. Hmm. That's kind of depressing. Do you do you think those numbers from 2012 are they on on the rise? Like in percentages, is there any? Uh, do you think there's a trend somehow to more misconduct or or more um, of just yeah honest mistakes? Yeah, I think I think it's really important to remember what retractions can and can't tell you. Um, it I I don't know that it's depressing that two thirds of retractions are due to misconduct, given that. Most of the time when people think about retractions, they're thinking about misconduct. Most of the time when editors think about retractions, they only retract if there's evidence of misconduct. Mm -hmm. That isn't actually, according to, you know, Committee on Publication Ethics Guidelines, that isn't necessarily sort of a requirement that there's that there's misconduct. But, um, you know, in fact, most retractions are misconduct because that's how most people think about retractions. So it's a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, the, the number of retract, I mean, I think it's also important to just break down what's actually happening. So the number of retractions, you know, is clearly on the rise. Um, in the year 2000, there were 36 retractions. In, in the year, in 2016, we have about 1,400 retractions in our database. Now, there are a couple of really important caveats there, because that looks like a dramatic increase, and it's still a fairly dramatic increase. But when you account for the fact that there are twice as many, there were about twice as many papers published in 2016 as in 2000, that that obviously means that you would expect twice as many retractions. You know, would you expect 40 times as many retractions, which is what it is? Obviously, there's some other factors 
at play. And one of the big ones is that we're actually looking for them. Um, you know, before 2007 or so, uh, publishers weren't using pu uh, uh, plagiarism detection software. So you wouldn't expect people to find plagiarism before that, uh, or at least it would be very difficult to find plagiarism. Uh, papers weren't online really very much before 2000. So, I mean, a lot of papers from before 2000 are now online, but before 2000 itself, a lot of them weren't online. And so hmm. no one could look for the image manipulation and the falsification and, and the images. Um, there are just more people looking at papers because they're online, whether they're open access or not. And so we have what I would think of as a screening effect. If you start screening for a very uh, for a condition that nobody ever tested for before, then all of a sudden you're going to find a lot of cases of that condition. It doesn't mean that the, the condition is actually on the rise. Now, all that being said, there is a little bit of evidence, uh, thanks to the work of someone named uh, Elizabeth Bick, who's done just amazing uh, detection of image manipulation. Uh, there's some evidence that, in fact, misconduct in certain areas may be on the rise. Now, we still have to replicate these these sort of uh, experiments or, or tests that, that Elizabeth and her colleagues did, but uh, it's pretty clear to me anyway that in certain areas, the amount of uh, image manipulation has increased over time. Um, and, you know, what again, what how this will all shake out, we're still learning about all of this. I think that it's still very much preliminary. Nobody thought there were this many retractions. Uh, and and now here we are knowing how many retractions there are. Um, just for our um, young scientists, um, uh, listeners, basically, how does retraction actually work? So uh, you find, or someone finds something wrong with a paper and then you notify whom? Can you just like explain step by step sort of procedure of retraction? Well, I, I actually, I think it's important to know that there isn't really a procedure for retraction. There's there's what ends up happening, uh, which is very different from a procedure. Uh, this is not something that most publishers or universities or researchers want to deal with. And to be honest, most people involved, many people involved in this process, uh, they, they don't act according to a protocol. They find reasons to ignore emails. They find reasons to take forever. They find reasons not to retract, even though someone, we just reported on a case uh, this week about, or saw a case this week of someone who had been found to have committed misconduct, and yet the journal said, well, we'll just correct the paper. That's, you know, so the, the when, when retractions do happen, it's almost, um, it, it's almost sort of not miraculous exactly, but it's, it's the unusual case. So lots of things can happen. I mean, what often happens is that someone brings allegations uh, of, of a problem or they, they, they bring some suggestions of an issue with a paper to a, a site like PubPeer. Uh, this happens a lot now. Um, or they, they write to the journal, uh, or they write to the university, or they write to the authors themselves. Um, but again, a lot of those people get ignored, or nobody does anything about it. Uh, and then if the journal and the university often, especially if it's misconduct, the journals often defer to the universities, uh, and the university does an investigation and finds that there was a problem, or the author can't provide the original data for something that looks a little bit uh, anomalous, then uh, you know, then the journal may decide to retract. Uh, but there isn't, you know, there are guidelines for these. The, the Committee on Publication Ethics guidelines on retraction are quite good. But you know, the the the, the idea that there's somehow a a uh, a process that everybody follows, 
I, I think is if it if people believe that it's a myth. Um, I, I don't know who I don't know if people believe that, but you know, there are ways things should happen. That isn't usually how they do happen. Well, I was kind of hoping for there is some kind of easy step to step guide to uh, yeah how to alert someone and then this and this happens. But yeah, I guess this is like any um, whistleblower business in a way. Um, basically, it's case to case, and um, yeah, depending on the environment you're in and how willing you are also to expose misconduct and and so on with people around you. Um, do you think like scientific misconduct? Um, do you think there's a like if it's on the rise, um, if the if this um, trend is confirmed, um, why do you think it's on the rise? Like what's happening? Has science changed? Have the scientists changed? Has the scientific system changed somehow in dramatic way? Like what's you going know, on? I, I don't know, and I, and I'm I'm always very careful not to speculate. Uh, I think it's it's risky, and and you know it, it damages your credibility when you when you speculate. Yeah. I mean. There, there are things that are true and it almost it sort of doesn't matter whether it's on the rise or not uh, whether these things are true and and certainly the one of the major problems is that uh, everything in science is measured everything in academia is measured by the number of papers you published in high impact factor journals like you know, procedures journals like nature and science and cell um, and so when you have incentives like that because it's the incentive is to publish in those journals. That's really the only thing you're supposed to do. When you have incentives like that, then people are going to do whatever they have to do to check those boxes to make sure they do that. And you know, for a lot of people, probably for most people, that just means working harder and trying to work smarter. Uh, for some number of people, uh, it's going to mean uh, maybe cutting corners or even committing misconduct. And so I, I don't, you know, economists like to say there are no bad people, just bad incentives. Hmm. And I, I think that everything we see in science in terms of misconduct and in terms of even repro the reproducibility uh, problem that, that everyone is also talking about, everything we deal with is completely predictable. I don't, I'm actually not sure why anyone's surprised that this is what happens. No. Well, I guess nobody's really surprised, but it's, um, I guess it's just... Uh, becoming more and more obvious so you cannot ignore it so that's why people started talking about it i guess uh, maybe not with a surprise note but as uh, like oh wow <laughs> resigned we, note yeah <laughs> like we, we have to talk about it now oh wow <laughs> bad <laughs> yeah um you were you were mentioning um the the bad bad incentives um do you think that links to the what i would describe maybe as the other side of the con which is sort of predatory journals so you've got researchers um, committing cutting corners or even committing research misconduct in order to get published. But then you've got predatory journals who are trying to make money off the and succeeding in making money off researchers by posing as open access journals and say and and holding the the bait of publication. Uh, so do you, do you think this is kind of um, part of the same same problem? Well, sure. I mean, if, if people didn't need to publish, then they wouldn't need to publish, right? So mm -hmm. if, if predatory journals offer an easier way to publish, uh, some of them are predatory. Sometimes it's willing prey. I mean, the, the term predatory is actually fairly controversial. And, and you know, what we really, the, the thing that we need to care about is whether some, whether a journal is misrepresenting the process of publication. Uh, and again, the, the, the there are these sort of, um, 
you know, battles and wars that happen uh, often because people get very hung up on on terminology and language. But at the end of the day, what I care about, I don't care how much uh, they charge. I don't care uh, where they are based. I don't care um, whether they have typos on their homepage, although that might suggest that something's going on. Um, I do care whether they spam people because that that is an indicator that they're not <clears throat> doing a lot of quality control. But what I really care about is if they claim that something is peer-reviewed, uh, was it actually peer-reviewed? And so, obviously, most of the problems we're seeing are with what, you know, we've traditionally thought of over the past eight years or so, uh, 10 years or so, as uh, predatory journals. But, you know, at the end of the day, do journals that we don't think of as predatory, do they do peer review, regardless of whether they charge anyone anything? And you know, sometimes we find cases where we can't understand how something got through peer review. And when you ask the journal, when they start to look at it, they can't either. And they can't really say what happened during peer review. So that's the important thing. Like, you know, is something being represented as peer reviewed when it actually wasn't? Uh, but clearly the, the issue is the same. It's if you need to publish and if you need to have a dossier or a CV that shows a lot of publications on what look like journals, then you're going to maybe find the easiest way to do that or the path of least resistance. And if uh, writing a check to a journal that doesn't actually peer review and that basically guarantees publication is, is possible, and if you somehow either miss the fact that it's predatory or um, you know it's predatory, then you're gonna do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess my concern, well, several of my concerns, uh, Riz, um, predatory journals would be that if anyone with enough money can publish in them, then you you then have a situation where shoddy or even false science is being published into something that looks to an untrained eye like an authentic scientific publication, which considering the situation with fake news and other misleading pseudoscience, um, I mean, to me, that's 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 a kind of a public health hazard. Um, um, I mean, I don't know which which do you think is is a bigger problem: the the, the predatory journals or the the research misconduct? I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know the, how I'd rank them. I, I huh. think that uh, you know, technically speaking, research misconduct is is a very rare phenomenon. Uh, predatory journals seem to be a less rare phenomenon. But in terms of impact, neither of those is at the top of my list. I mean, what's at the top of my list if you want to talk about whether, you know, what people should trust and uh, what's being published and what's being covered by the media. If you, if you mentioned fake news, yeah. you know, that has sort of always been with us. This, this incessant uh, coverage of single studies that happens every day, every hour uh, now online, um, that's actually to me much more problematic because you know, let's face it, most journals, most papers and predatory journals are not covered at all. In fact, most papers aren't covered at all. Um, what gets covered is what uh, journals send out as embargoed press releases. And what journals have managed to do is to, uh, I think, by spoon feeding a willing uh, group of journalists, uh, decide what they're going to cover and when and have them overemphasize, really dramatically overemphasize the single studies. Now, it's better to cover studies than to cover 
you know, things that aren't peer reviewed. I, I still believe that. But I don't think it's great to cover single studies every week. It's why or every day. It's why we have coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you, red wine, chocolate. And so that to me is a much more pernicious problem than whether or not every now and then uh, some predatory journal study uh, sneaks into press, con- you know, press coverage. Um, they're both they're both bad, yeah. but when we sort of for, when we sort of exempt the the traditional journals, the the big prestigious journals, because they've managed to really in my in my mind co-opt uh, through you know some unfair practices actually, but some fair practices uh, managed to co-opt journalists into covering what they want us to cover when they want us to cover them. Um, that, that to me, in the long term, is a much worse problem. Well, isn't that sort of um, part of the same side of a coin, if that's even an English expression? Um, but basically, I mean, the institutes want publicity um, and the scientists want publicity. So therefore, um, all the single studies <coughs> sorry, um, get emphasized to get, uh, to get another points on the CV in a way, right? I mean, like you, there's this competition for not only for the CV list full of publications, but also um, sort of being a public figure, known person, building reputation by being out there. Um, I don't know. Uh, is it really, um, I mean, I, I hear sort of like three different areas here now talking to you. Um, so the peer review as a sort of cornerstone cornerstone of ensuring that the only real, like really proved science is published. Um, this is of course a hot area of debate, like our current system of peer review and how it can be changed and so on and so on. The other one is the scientific, um, well, the, the pressure to, to progress careers through, um, um, through uh, yeah, having more and more uh, just points on the CV, but without um, sort of all these other factors that make a scientific career important. Um, and the third one is basically uh, the non-access to to the actual um, yeah, the process of science somehow for most of people, because they only can, I mean, people can only judge what they read. Am I, am I hearing this correctly? This is, I mean, I just, just like having random thoughts about like how to connect all these things, because one, on one side, you can, you can bash the sort of, well, not bash, but like, you know, criticize definitely science journalism as it's been done today. Um, is this uh, really just, um, I mean, is it really journalism still, or is it just a fan club of, science basically just cheering on uh you could criticize the scientific system itself i don't know what where would you see maybe some kind of solution and how can this be um united like for a for a better scientific conduct uh, in the end for better science for all it's certainly united right it's it's all about the fact like like i was saying earlier it's all about the fact that the only thing that matters in careers and in uh, research and in terms of apportioning research grants, uh, whether to individuals or universities. I mean, you have ranking systems which are based on, everything is based on publication in the prestigious journals. So we have given those journals all of the power. Mm. And if you, and so everything seems to follow from that. Yes, you know, universities want publicity. Why? Because it reminds everyone that they are, their authors are published, their researchers are publishing in all of these top big you know, expensive journals. Uh, And then those universities get ranked based on how many people 
are published in those journals. I mean, it's all very, very circular. So that's what unites it. And what journals have managed to do, not only have they managed to convince everyone that that is what matters, and academics are responsible for part of this because they are the ones who sit on these committees. Um, they've also managed to get journalists to agree not essentially not to talk to anyone except when a paper comes out. So there's a there's a rule called the Inglefinger rule, where most journals, especially the big ones that do all the press releases, either directly or in a way that they can plausibly deny but is still true, they there's basically a ban on researchers talking about their work with reporters except right before the paper's published so that they, there can be a story on it. So, you know, because researchers, if you talk to them, they will say, well, I don't want to talk to the press because if I talk about my results before they're published, the journal won't publish them. And if the journal won't publish them, I won't get tenure, I won't get grants, I won't get, you know, prizes, et cetera. And so it actually is all related. But I think it's always important to look at the big picture and for those who actually have authority and responsibility and we're making big decisions and policies to think about the root causes and the root causes, as far as I'm concerned, is the need to publish in these journals and everything follows from that. So, you know, predatory journals follow from that. Uh, the misconduct, a lot of it follows from that. I think a lot of reproducibility issues and bad science journalism follows from that. I, I wrote a piece uh, a few years ago now for the AMA Medical Ethics Journal, where it was sort of my my attempt to to show that at every stage of the process, the the from getting a grant, from a researcher getting a grant, to publishing a paper, to putting out a press release, to the science journals and the follows, all of it, the, the incentives are pointed the wrong way. They're they're misaligned at every stage. Um, so again, I'm not I'm not sure why we're surprised, if anyone is still surprised, uh, at what happened. Yeah, and one of the the things that open science tries to do is suggest that there are there are alternatives to this system. Um, altmetrics, so you're not measuring on the ranking systems you mentioned, but you're measuring on you know other factors such as um, you know social media or is it being disseminated in in, in interesting ways. Um, do you, I mean, do you think these can be, to a certain extent, antidote to the problem you've just outlined so um, articulately? <laughs> I, I have issues with all metrics. I, I, they're metrics. And the, the problem with every metric is that it can be gained. And if anything, a lot of the alt metrics that we're now looking at are even more easily gamed than impact factor is. Um, do you know what the best way, if, if you're not in a big journal that tends to get a lot of citations and attention anyway, you know what the best way to make sure you have high alt metrics on your paper is? No, tell us. It's to retract your paper. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, that's... Uh... I mean, look, and, and some, so there's somebody who vlogged about this. It wasn't my idea. Someone who vlogged about this actually showed it, you know. Yeah. For for some small percentage of papers, of course, writ large, that's a that, that is a bit of a joke. But the point is, if you want lots of, you know, you want people to, you know, you find the ten influencers who have the most Twitter followers, and you mm. somehow get them to to tweet about your paper, and all of a sudden you have a high alt metric score. Uh, you know, the yes, it's good that we're looking at more things than just impact factor and citations, but and and I'm all for that, and I actually find alt metrics very useful when I want to see how much press coverage something has had, how much attention it's had on, online, 
because that actually helps me to decide whether we should cover something or not sometimes. But so I, I, I understand the value there, but that's not because I understand the value in terms of judging how important something is. It's just how how sort of relevant people found it. That's actually a very different thing. So, you know, in, in terms of open science, I mean, we're, we're big fans of preprints. We think that it makes things happen faster. Um, you know, people often ask us, well, can preprints and open science, open data, because uh, open science is sort of depends who you talk to about what that really means. Mm. Uh, you know, do all, could all these things help prevent misconduct? I, 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 I suppose theoretically that's true, but if someone really wanted to just fake data, um, you know, there are tools now that are, people are starting to develop that might determine whether someone's faking data. But uh, at the end of the day, if someone wants to fake data, I think they're going to fake data. Um, what, what open data does is allow people to, it's more on the reproducibility front. Uh, it's more on the, does this actually hold up? Not, not when someone's committing misconduct or fraud, um, but maybe, you know, maybe there's a little bit of p-hacking, which is borderline right now. Nobody's willing to call it misconduct or fraud yet, but some people are suggesting we might. Uh, or just, you know, errors or, you know, wrong interpretations or, you know, assumptions that went into a model that actually, you know, because you because you, people can actually see what you did, you can catch that that sort of wrong or mistaken assumption earlier. I mean, I think that's all good and and, and we're big fans of it. But until we solve this bigger problem of of the only thing that mattering being the you know publishing in these in these high impact factor journals, uh, I, I don't I don't think things are going to change all that much. Um, things maybe get faster. I think think you know people will become more collaborative and maybe trust each other more and you know sort of trust the peer review process more um, because I think that that has taken a bit of a beating, uh, but you know somewhat justifiably. But I don't, I don't know that it's going to, you know, limit misconduct per se. Hmm. So do you do you still think that peer review is uh, is the the way we're doing it um, is the way to continue doing this or? Yeah. No, I, I no, I, I don't think so at all. I think that we need to have something that is that we would commonly call peer review. I, I think that it's a really important filter and it does differentiate what you know sort of can be considered reliable from not, but. I also think that we should be publishing, you know, posting preprints and having people look at it. But what we need to do is to stop thinking about the world in a binary way of peer-reviewed versus not peer-reviewed. There's there are predatory journals which, you know, basically aren't doing peer review and yet claiming to do peer review. So that label is already meaningless. And then there are journals that actually do an excellent job of peer review and that actually publish their peer review reports uh, and actually publish the peer reviews so that. People can see what happened during the process and what the questions were. And then there are a lot of journals that are, you know, they're, they're cloaking themselves in the mantle of peer reviewed, but their peer review just isn't very good. I, I don't know what exactly they're doing and I, I they don't tell you and they won't publish the report. So, you know, when something gets retracted and it's just such an obvious flaw that, you know, if someone is finding a flaw the minute a paper is published, you tell me what the person who did the peer review was doing before that. Were they the wrong person, which would be the journal's fault? Uh, were they the right person, but who didn't actually spend any time doing their the peer review, which is sometimes unfortunately the case. Um, so this notion that it's binary and well, it's peer reviewed or it's not peer reviewed, that's a problem. Show me what actually happened. You know, This is what happened. We had three people who work in this field, they did the peer review, hear the reports. I mean, anonymize them if you think that that's so important. You know, 
and I can understand a lot of arguments for that, actually. And I think that open peer review, while to me really uh, critical in the very long term, um, we need to grapple with the fact that science is so unfair to so many groups of people right now, and that open peer review would have a disproportionate um, you know, effect on uh, populations of, of people, right? I think we need to be honest about that and figure out a solution for that. But in the meantime, you can publish the, the peer review itself without the name, perhaps, um, so that we can actually understand what happened. Um, Irene, and I'm not, you know, and, and, and it isn't just me sort of saying this, um, Irene Hames, uh, who's done a tremendous amount of work over the, over the decades, she's, you know, kind of a, a, a dean of, of, of thinking about scientific publishing and, and peer review, uh, involved in many of the important, uh, you know, sort of developments over the past several decades. Uh, she has called for, let's, you know, publish peer reviews. Let's publish all of them. Um, let's actually see what happened. Um, and so I, I think, you know, clearly, I, you know, in my mind, peer review is actually not working the way everyone hopes it would or even wants you to think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, journals love to talk about how important peer review is. And again, they like to tell journalists not to cover anything that hasn't been peer reviewed yet. And yet when they something's retracted, for an obvious error that should have been caught during peer review, they find a reason to say, well, that shouldn't, that couldn't have been caught during peer review. We wrote a, Adam and Marcus and I, my co-founder of Attraction Watch, we wrote a column a few years ago in STAT. We have a regular column there where we talked about, you know, here's, we called peer review, a, you know, a sort of toothless dog. And the, the, what, you know, people got very upset with that call. A lot of people in publishing, particularly traditional publishing, oh, this, you know, this isn't fair and all of that. All we were doing was quoting, and we weren't quoting them out of context. We had lots of context. All we were doing was quoting things that editors and publishers had said whenever something went wrong in peer review and couldn't, and they, they really weren't, couldn't defend it. Mm-hmm. And they apparently, you know, much maybe like our, Maybe perhaps like our current president, uh, not to get political. No, get political. It helps. <laughs> you know, who apparently meant meant to say something different than he actually said, which mm. nobody believes because he's not a believable person, to say the least. You know, suddenly when 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 they see these quotes um, and see what they actually say, they they didn't think that they were, you know, they wanted to claim that they. Uh, that's not what they meant or, or what have you. But, you know, I still actually believe in peer review. I just think that if we're going to be, if we're going to have the kind of science that we want and have the kind of transparency and and um, sort of reliability that I know scientists all want, um, then we need the, the process, the, the system needs to improve. You know, fields need to learn from each other. Uh, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been at where I'll, I'll talk about something that is second nature to one field of science and everyone in, in, in another field of science will go, wow, that I've never heard of that. Well, that's because nobody's paying attention. You know, pre-registration, which is now, everybody's getting very excited about pre-registration, you know, particularly in psychology and some other fields. Yeah. Pre-registration has been the law, the law for 10 years in clinical trials, mm. right? And, and before that, it was the only, you could, you, you only, got published if you uh, pre-registered. So whether it's clinicaltrials.gov here in the States or you know the EU has their own, every, everybody's got a clinical trials registry where you have, you know, by law, you have to submit your protocol and say what you're going to do. And 
otherwise you won't get published. Also, you you could face a fine. I mean, you you know you can't do human subjects research without doing that. And so now all of a sudden other fields are getting excited about that, which is a good thing. Hmm. But you know, same thing with preprints. You know, uh, uh, there was a, a movement to create preprints in the 1960s in biology. Uh, you know, again, there's no reason why it wouldn't work in any other field. It just might work a little differently. And in fact, it, the, the evidence is pretty clear that the big publishers killed the idea mm. and were able to successfully kill the idea uh, back then. And so now it's being reinvigorated for various reasons. But, you know, we, we just, you know, different fields have to learn from each other. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work in every field. You know, again, learn, learn from one another. It's, it's like when, when one city that's dealing with a particular problem looks at a city that has been dealing with that problem for 10 years, why, why wouldn't we want them to talk and sort of help each other? Well, I guess now and also in this increasingly interdisciplinary research, uh, basically we need to uh, even adapt to each other's practices, start to talk the same language. So, I mean, like life sciences, you have engineers and uh, physicists and mathematicians working together with all the different publishing practices. And so, um, yeah, that's where I'm surprised that it hasn't happened yet, but people um, have started learning more from each other, from different publishing practices. Um, to go back to the um, to the to the journal, so basically just to uh, sort of um, take home message. Um, so you advocating advocating for uh, more preprint, um, more postprint review, and some kind of like peer review watch. Is that the, is that the um, what you would say would be the the solution? Um, at least a good sort of uh, good way to go. Well, I, I think these are all things that we should try. I, I think there's some growing evidence that they, they may have an effect. I, I would never claim to have the solution. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough. I, I don't actually know enough to, uh, to be able to say what the solution is. We should be scientific about this. We should be evidence-based. Okay, so do the experiment first now and then uh, evaluate and adapt. We should try some things. I mean, we shouldn't... We shouldn't we shouldn't not do anything until there's absolutely, you know, black and white evidence everyone can agree on. That that's, doesn't seem realistic either. But we should try some things. We shouldn't be afraid to try some things and see some things that fail. You know, the peer review Congress has been happening now since, uh, I don't know what, the 1980s. Uh, they just had the eighth peer review Congress last fall. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting what's changed and what actually has stayed the same. I mean, there's a lot. Now there's a bit of frustration that we actually... We know a lot of things and we don't act on them. Uh, and if you, you know, th that's sort of a, its own kind of shame and its own kind of waste. Um, but no, I think I think preprints, I think, uh, you know, some kind of open peer review, publishing the peer reviews, even anonymously. I think that embracing post-publication peer review like PubPeer and other, other mechanisms, uh, all those are really important. We should try all of them. I have optimism that at least some of them will, will make a difference, but I don't think I have all the answers. I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure what fraction of the answers I I would have, even if I smart. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's all. I mean, I think we all agree. It comes all down to the incentives because even if we have all this fantastic pre-print, post-print, peer review in real time, anything it still comes down to the scientists actually doing the job. Uh, so. In the increasing, increasingly more competitive environment, where you compete for less and less positions in academia, with more and more people and needing bigger and 
more impressive stories to uh, to advance your career, I think it's very difficult. Um, I just been to the European um, Open Science Neuroscience um, Open Forum, sorry, conference, and there was a talk about um, yeah, open access and uh, peer review was like a panel, and the representative from uh, Nature uh, Springer, um, she said basically that um, yeah, I mean they have to send out a paper to like at least 10 people before they get one to agree even to look at the possibility of doing the peer review, um, committing to it. So um, with the amount of data coming out and the papers, I frankly, I'm not really sure if maybe maybe some kind of deep machine learning AI uh, solution would be even easier. I wonder if we can even expect um, scientists to actually do this job properly. In Well, I, I, yeah, but I, I think that you know, this is part of the problem, right? So, mm. um, we, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, machine learning may be useful in certain ways, but um, it, it can't replace actual judgment. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the same way tenure committees need to actually read papers, we, we need to remember that there's some, some value in that. And, and let's forget where the paper's published. Let's just read it and see if it's any good. Um, does it, and, and that, and that the, any good doesn't depend on the ground, great results. It depends on, you know, is the method solid? Is it, is it, is it reproducible? Is it well explained? Um, does it show some insights into what's actually happening? Um, regardless of results, uh, you know, there's even results, free peer review that people are, uh, trying to talk about, which is sort of some version of registered reports where someone says, a journal says, well, we will you know, we will peer review the protocol, and if the protocol is solid, we'll publish it regardless of what the results are. Um, and that will that will hopefully get at the problem of positive publication bias, which is another issue, and that is all tied to incentives. Um, but you know, we we have to um, we have to try these things and look at them. I know you, you you've made it very clear you don't you don't have the answers and you um, you're not some kind of <laughs> uh, guru who's going to fix science. But I mean, to the the early career researchers who might be listening, I mean, what would your kind of best advice be, or, or your just your kind of thoughts on the, the the scientific world they're going into? Well, I mean, look at everything as as scientists should, which is with an open mind, um, try to be evidence-based, uh, understand what the incentives are, and understand how our own confirmation bias can get in our way. Um, you know, think about, uh, lo look at um, their peers and, and and try and actually do something about this. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit like, you know, climate change. Um, you know, uh, we can sort of say, well, that that's a real problem, but, you know, I, I need to drive and I need to get into you know, I need to get in a plane and I need to do all these things. Um, maybe someone will solve it someday, but, you know, I just need to get where I'm going. Or you can say, well, it might require some personal sacrifice and there might have to be some some discomfort. Otherwise, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are, who are gunning for science and who would like to uh, use all of this. I mean, we've seen this certainly in the States and I think elsewhere, where the sort of every transparency initiative is turned on its head and used as evidence that science is not trustworthy or, yeah. uh, you know, should be defunded. Well, um, guess what? That's going to happen if if scientists don't do something about this themselves. That's always been the case. And the definition of a profession is the ability to self-regulate. And so 
you know, it, it isn't, it, it's a bit existential, but it isn't simply somebody else's problem. And I know that early career research have lots of pressure and, you know, certainly I don't want to burden them more, but if they want a long-term career that's going to be satisfying, that's actually going to be rewarding and, and do what science wants, you know, what scientists would like to do, um, then they're going to have to be part of the solution. And, um, you know, that, that may at different points be uncomfortable. But I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've always tried to, you know, sort of lead my life and, and, um, and, and do my work and, and think about my career that way. But, um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to, you might have to do that. had so many interesting he touched on so many interesting points yeah i think i mean we come back to this topic over and over again this um incentives and peer review and i think i hear had some quite interesting he said it's quite interesting things that i haven't really uh, heard about before um this um result free pre-registration Yes. A review of before the results, just the study, and then publish whatever comes out. I think that's a really interesting idea. That's quite a radical idea as well. I, I really like that. Um, I honestly, I don't have much to add. I really liked his uh, his appeal to the you know to everybody working in their profession. Like you know, if you want your profession to be something aligned with your values and you know the, the way you want to have it, well, you have to do something about it. And I don't think it really applies just to science. It's anything you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Nobody's going to do it for you. No, exactly. You have to be the change you want to see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> really nothing to add. Let's go yeah. go to our vegan lunch then, I guess, <laughs> to save the planet. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for listening. And we hope you join us next time. The music was uh, produced and uh, composed by Fabio De Miguel. The editing, sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. And as always, please contact us. You can find us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod. Yep. Uh, you can email us as well directly at uh, Orion at mdc-berlin.de. Um, and if you're interested in um, anything other than podcasts, like workshops and stuff, we're also available for that, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We are a traveling circus. Actually, we go, we go wherever you are and bring you the word of open science. So email for more details about that. Um, and see you in two weeks. We're doing bi-weekly now. So yeah, because it's uh, we're not really in the same room very often at the moment. So. Yeah. So see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.